Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. If you're looking for a diet for a congenital heart disease patient, I would look no further than the Mediterranean diet. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of your program. I am so excited today to feature a nutritionist. Today's show is entitled Nutritional Considerations for the Congenital Heart Defect Community. Skylar Griggs is a licensed registered dietitian and nutrition counselor specializing in a variety of nutrition-related conditions. She has experience working in pediatric and family nutrition as well as pre- and postnatal nutrition, eating disorders, weight management, cardiac risk factors including hypertension, high cholesterol, and obesity, diabetes, and overall wellness. Skylar is the lead dietitian for the Preventive Cardiology Division at Children's Hospital Boston, the teaching hospital of Harvard Medical School. In addition to working with clients, Skylar is a lecturer, consultant, spokesperson, and media contributor, providing nutrition news for Fox 25 News Boston and Boston Magazine Online. Skylar also provides corporate nutrition consulting for a number of companies, including Saving Star Supermarkets. Skylar's personal blog, Newberry Street Nutrition, offers nutrition and meal tips for busy individuals and families on the go. Skylar is an active member of the American Dietitian Association, the previous membership chair of the Greater New York Dietetic Association, and a member of the Massachusetts Dietetic Association. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna Schuyler. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, I am so excited to have somebody who is so passionate about diet and nutrition and who also knows about adults with congenital heart defects. (laughs) They're one of my favorite populations. I've had some experience working with them, and and I really, really enjoy the spirit of those types of patients. Oh, that's so good to know. You are so passionate about nutrition. So tell me what started you on this passion. So it's kind of a winding road story. When I was about 16 years old, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and Mm. she was working with a dietitian on ways that she could be healthier around chemotherapy and radiation. And I saw the way that changes to her diet and not incredibly significant changes, small changes to her diet really made a difference. So when Hmm. she did things like including more fruits or vegetables or cutting out some of the more processed snack foods, I started to see and she started to observe that she was feeling a bit better. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting that the foods that we eat, the the things that we put in our body, especially during the time of high stress, something like cancer or heart disease or congenital heart disease, it can be applied to any different illness or just a normal, healthy person, 
how what we eat and what we put in our bodies makes us feel better or worse. Right, so right. After, yeah. after kind of observing that and, and seeing what a great relationship she had with her dietitian, and this was at the, the Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston, she brought me home some pamphlets because she could see that I was particularly interested in it and said, you know, mm-hmm. when you go to college someday, maybe this is something that you want to think about. Maybe this is something that you want to get more involved in or maybe you want to learn a little bit more about. And so I packed my bags, went off to Syracuse as a freshman and started mm-hmm. in pre-med and was really interested in medicine and especially pediatrics, but kind of always had nutrition in the back of my head. And then my sophomore year, I declared nutrition as my major, and it was truly one of the best decisions I ever made because oh, wow. I find nutrition to be a, a field that's ever evolving and, and also something that I just enjoy helping people. So kind of the, the long you know, it is ever evolving. And I think that's what's so interesting, even though you would wonder what more could we learn from this, but foods are changing all of the time. The additives that are put in the foods that we buy at the grocery store and the hormones that are used and all of these things come into play. And it does seem like it's changing on an almost daily basis, doesn't it? It really does. And I think the thing for people to remember is that the diet industry is a multi-billion dollar business. And so you'll see that nutrition recommendations are being advertised by everyone. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's not just the dietitian that's providing the nutrition information. It's the personal trainer. It's Mm -hmm. the health coach. It's the life coach. And while I think that those are, you know, done with the best of intentions, I think sometimes things get lost. And getting the accurate information can be real difficult. Well, it's not just that. It's as you're buying your groceries at the grocery store, how many different magazines talk about this diet or that diet? You see famous people who are promoting this cleanse or that cleanse. I mean, it seems like we're almost bombarded with information about diet. And then there's Dr. Oz and other people who are on television that you take as an authority. So. The problem is that you get so much conflicting information. Some people say keto, some people say paleo, some people say vegetarian or vegan. And so there's a lot of different conflicting information out there. Let's take a step back for just a second, because I'm really interested in your early days. So at 16, you were influenced greatly, it sounds like, to go into the field of nutrition. Tell me how you decided to start working specifically with the pediatric and family populations. Well, I always had an interest in pediatrics. I mean, I think it was something that always piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. Again, when I was in my dietetic internship at NYU, I actually had the opportunity to do some work with a pediatric practice in Queens. And I got Mm -hmm. to see a bunch of different types of patients there. And what I was seeing the most of was pediatric obesity and Mm. seeing a lot of children coming in with no significant past medical history, but dealing with a lot of weight issues, particularly Mm. in in an urban environment where access to healthy foods is sometimes can be more difficult. Mm -hmm. What I also observed is that eating healthy is expensive. So for many of these families, Mm -hmm. there are ways to eat healthy on a budget, but for many of these families, they were really struggling with how can I gain access to healthy foods and where can I find them? Mm-hmm. So that really piqued my interest, my experience working with the pediatric practice in Queens. I went on and I started working at a center in the Bronx. My first job was in the Bronx. And it was at a center for women and families with HIV and AIDS. 
And it was a soup kitchen and nutrition kind of education cross job. So I was working with people who were receiving emergency food, but also showing them how to cook with healthy food items that were inexpensive. And I wow. really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. It was a really, really great experience. Right. So is that kind of what inspired you to start working on the news as well? Yeah, well, I think the news kind of fell into my lap just as an opportunity of being a part of Boston Children's. You are given the opportunity to be an expert contributor from time to time on different nutrition trending topics. And so I had the opportunity and I believe it was 2014 to really spend a lot of time doing some media interviews, which was great experience for me. And also really interesting because there's, as you said, many emerging topics that come across and People are interested in kind of hearing an expert opinion, which is great. Absolutely. Um, but the job at Boston Children's, though, kind of came upon me after I had left my job in Harlem. I was working in eating disorders, ironically, and I saw a job opportunity come up for preventive cardiology. So working with patients with congenital heart disease, but also patients with high cholesterol and high blood pressure. So I thought that's really interesting using nutrition as a way to manage lipid disorders and blood pressure issues, and it really piqued my interest on Fontana. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Hi, my name is Jamie Alcroft, and I just published my new book, The Tin Man Diaries. It's an amazing story of my sudden change of heart as I went through a heart and liver transplant. I can think of no better way to read The Tin Man Diaries than to cuddle up in your favorite Hearts Unite the Globe sweatshirt and your favorite hot beverage, of course, in your Hearts Unite the Globe mug, both of which are available at the Hug Podcast Network online store, or visit heartsunitetheglobe.org. Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl and he held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Before the break, we were talking with Skylar about becoming a nutritionist and working with children and families. Now I'd like to talk to you, Skylar, about your expertise with congenital heart disease. What do you feel are the specific nutritional requirements of patients with congenital heart disease? I think that's a great question. And I think that the nutritional considerations span across the course of a patient's treatment. So when a young baby presents with congenital heart disease, even sometimes in utero, and then once they're born, we know that there's many specific nutrition considerations based on the type of congenital heart disease that they have. 
And one of the Mm -hmm. biggest challenges for cardiologists and for dietitians working with kids with congenital heart disease is making sure that they're getting enough calories because the body's working so much harder. Mm -hmm. But a shift that we've noticed lately and a really interesting shift that I was not aware of until I really spent some time working with these patients is 10, 15 years ago, we were spending time really encouraging foods that were not particularly healthy, but we knew would Mm -hmm. boost the calories of these patients. So, Mm -hmm. for example, say load them up with butter, load them up with any calories in them as you can. Well, now we know that while that may have been effective from a weight perspective, it's possible that we could have instituted dietary habits in those patients that might not be beneficial in the long term. Right. So, you know, we have kids that congenital heart disease patients that are living for a really long time, but they've never had a vegetable because all of the foods that have been pushed on them have been these really high fat high-calorie, not healthy options. And so what we're trying to do, at least in the cardiology department at Boston Children's, is encourage the intake of not only some of those, what we call saturated fats, but also really good sources of fats. So things like peanut butters, almond butter, avocados, and healthy oils, fish and seeds and olives, because we know that those are good for the heart in addition to being high in calories. Wow. I just love what you just said. That is so... Totally perfect. My son is 24 years old. He was born with a congenital heart defect. They did exactly what you said. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) I was discouraged from breastfeeding my son because they said there weren't enough calories in the breast milk. And that's not the case anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I said, I don't care if you don't think there are enough calories. I know that my antibodies and that there are other things in breast milk that are important for my son. And so I continue to breastfeed him anyway. And he ended up doing just fine. And now it's just the opposite. They realize how important the breast milk is. And so that seems to be encouraged a lot more than it was 24 years ago. I just think that the whole scientific arena around babies with congenital heart disease and food has changed. I remember friends of mine 24 years ago saying, I don't know what to do. They're still saying my baby's emaciated. And by baby, I mean maybe an eight or a 10 month old baby. I'm just giving him macaroni and cheese and chicken fingers. And I would kind of cringe because I thought, but, but where's salad and broccoli? (laughs) Right. You know, those patterns need to be developed at that age. And I think you have to keep in mind that many of these patients already feel special, singled out, different, right? right? Because they're mm-hmm. born with this congenital heart disease. So right. we don't want that to be an opportunity to steer them away from healthy foods because they mm-hmm. feel like they're different or they don't need to have those. And I think that eating healthy for your heart is eating a variety of foods and finding mm-hmm calories from healthy fats can be just as beneficial. Right, right. I love avocados. So that's one of my go-to foods. <laughs> is they avocados. Are the heart. <laughs> they, they are just great in so many ways. And yeah, you know, I'm from Texas. So guacamole, just got to have it. I'm sure David might right, right. say the same thing because he's from Austin. You just can't go <laughs> to too many restaurants in this area without having some avocado in one way or another. But why don't you tell us about some of those healthy snacks and healthy meals that heart parents can prepare for their children who have congenital heart defects, especially parents like me, who was dealing with a child who was labeled emaciated, who was labeled failure to thrive at one time in his life. Right. 
So I think what I would say to someone is let's focus on healthy fats and protein. So we want to make sure that the child's getting enough protein to ensure that they're growing properly. So including things like apples with a cheese stick or a little mm-hmm. bit of yogurt, making smoothies with fresh frozen fruit and Greek yogurt, encouraging pro- animal proteins, things like chicken and fish, but then also integrating some of those healthy fats that we were talking about. So mm-hmm. you mentioned avocados and guacamole, and that's a great one, but something people often don't think about is you can actually add something like avocado to a smoothie. That's going to boost the calories. Ah. Yeah. yeah, it might change the consistency a little bit, but you're, I mean, an avocado has somewhere around 300 calories in it. You know, that's a pretty hefty dose for a child. So even getting half of that would be beneficial. The mm-hmm. other thing that you can think about is often people forget something like tuna fish is a great source of omega-3 healthy fats. Putting that on some kind of whole grain cracker or on a sandwich with whole wheat bread, that's a great snack or a great meal and a good way to boost calories. The other ways are things like trail mixes, nut mixes, sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds. Those are all really good ways to boost calories, but also protect the heart because they provide the types of fats that boost what we call HDL or good cholesterol. So getting Mm -hmm. in snacks that have those types of fats in them is really helpful. Oh, that's all such good and important news. I think Mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of parents do not really think about. Right. One thing that I discovered when my husband and I decided to do more of a keto diet is that guacamole tastes really good with celery sticks. You don't have Mm -hmm. to have fatty chips. There are other things that you can have that are better for you. Fresh vegetables, for example. And even talking about something like the keto diet, the keto diet, although it's very high in fat, There's things that you can take from each diet, right? Whether it's the keto diet, the Mediterranean diet, the paleo diet, the queen diet. There are common strands in all of those diets. And one of the most common strands is the emphasis on heart-healthy fats, is the emphasis Mm -hmm. on whole grains, is the emphasis on fruits and vegetables. If you're looking for a diet for a congenital heart disease patient, I would look no further than the Mediterranean diet. It's the most well-studied diet that's out there. And it's just an emphasis on fiber, healthy fat, lean proteins, and whole grains. That's a really good place to start. My husband and I love to travel. And so we've been to Italy and we've been to Germany. Those people are thin. They're a lot thinner than when you walk around America. And I'm sure there are several reasons. One thing is a lot of those countries are better walking countries. (laughs) than what the United States is, especially Texas. You can't just walk to the grocery store in most areas (laughs) because it's too far and it's too hot. So it's not as reasonable. Whereas when we were in Vienna, we just walked everywhere. It was amazing. When we were in Italy, we just tended to walk everywhere or use the public transportation. And so I think that's one disadvantage that we have, at least in Texas, maybe not so much in Washington, D.C. or New York City, where you can get on a subway and be where you want to. But in Texas, anyway, where I live in Central Texas, that's a lot harder. But the other thing is the diet. You see a lot of people with the Mediterranean diet. When you go into restaurants, the portions that they serve you are much smaller than what you get served here in the United States. And I think all of that contributes to people eating more than they should and not eating what they should. Yes, and people are actually walking to the grocery store every day to pick up their groceries. 
right? Right. Meaning Europe mm-hmm. often people leave their home every day to go pick up some fresh food. And that's right. not to say that frozen doesn't work as best. I mean, there's frozen vegetables and frozen fish, and you can get as much nutrition from those as you can from the fresh version. But the reason that the Mediterranean diet has worked so well is that people are just buying what they need as opposed to filling their homes up with snacks and kind of what we call empty calories. So I think there's right. a lot to learn from that part of the world. Oh, I think there is too. Well, you know, one thing that I noticed when we were over there is they have these tiny refrigerators. It looks more like a refrigerator that you see in a common dormitory in the United States yes. versus the big gigantic refrigerators and freezers that we have here. And so I think that kind of encourages people to stock up and maybe overbuy and maybe overbuy things that aren't so good for you. Right, right. And I think when we have those foods around, especially with kids, so we're trying to promote what we like to call a food safe house, right? So meaning that all of the healthy options are available at home and there's limited access to unhealthy options because if the unhealthy options are there, kids are going to go for them. Sure. So, so are the grown-ups. Right, exactly. <laughs> I have my house, game over. <laughs> I'm going to go for those. And especially when you're trying to encourage your child to try new foods, if they know that there's an alternative or something that they can have instead, the chances mm-hmm. of them trying to include that healthy food more often become less and less. Right, right. I noticed that one thing that really encouraged my boys to try new foods was when I involved them in the food preparation. And my boys like to cook. And we did some gardening because I thought that would be a really good way for them to understand where their food came from. And so we would garden together and then we would harvest things from the garden together and immediately come in and cook them or put them in a salad or make tea. We grew fresh peppermint and we made peppermint tea. And that really excited them. So they were more eager to try something because they had had a hand in helping to grow it. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's a huge piece of getting children to try new foods is to get them involved in the process and help them to understand the way that foods are made and where they come from. Because oftentimes when children prepare their own foods or learn how to grow their own foods or learn where their foods are coming from, they're much more likely to try them. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Skylar, before the break, we were talking about all kinds of nutritional considerations for different members of the congenital heart defect community, and really for everybody, for the parents as well, for even the heart-healthy children in the family. But now we have a live studio audience, and I see some of these members of our audience already have some questions for you, and we're going to start with Cindy. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Cindy. Hello. 
Hi, I hear you um, have a question for Skylar. Skylar, I just graduated nursing school. And one of the things that we learned in nursing school is when a baby is breastfeeding, it's a two-way highway. And so as the mother's milk goes into the baby, some of the baby's spit actually goes into the mother's breast. And the body chemically changes the formula for the breast milk for the next time the baby needs to feed. So it gets exactly what it needs. Really, really interesting. And I think it just highlights the idea that the more that we can encourage something that's so natural like that, that kind of natural give and take from the body, the body kind of knowing the best way to handle a situation to support the baby is is wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. Oh, that's fascinating. I have never heard of that before, Cindy. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. That makes me feel even better that I fought with the doctor and did it anyway. You You did it right. You did it right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but baby, it was good for me and I was good for my baby. (laughs) It's nice to know when you do something right, especially 24 years later, because, you know, you don't always get that kind of feedback. (laughs) Well, our show is international today. and We have Megan from Australia. Welcome to Heart Heart with Anna, Megan. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for inviting me along. I've really enjoyed listening to this show, and I think that it's going to help a lot of people. I have a couple of diet questions. One is a very simple question, so I'll start with that one. The first one is, what about coconut oil as a healthy fat that's used in a lot of homemade desserts and things like that? I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) That was a topic that I actually wanted to mention, and I'm so glad you brought up coconut oil. In patients with congenital heart disease and any type of cardiology patient, or really in the general population as a whole, Mm. we know that coconut oil, especially in people who have high cholesterol, will make their cholesterol worse. So what I would say for coconut oil is If you have a family history of high cholesterol, especially for patients with congenital heart disease, we really want to just be aware of of high cholesterol, I would say skip the coconut oil because coconut oil has been found in people with high cholesterol to actually worsen the LDL cholesterol. Although it's absorbed differently, it does still have a lipid-raising effect, so it does still raise the cholesterol. There are many other types of oils. One of my favorite is avocado oil for high heat cooking. So if you're doing a lot of high heat cooking, I like avocado oil, canola oil, sunflower oil. But the coconut oil we have found will raise cholesterol levels. And in patients with congenital heart disease, that's not something that we want to kind of add to the fight. So I would say use it on your hair, use it on your skin, but try not to use it in your food. Okay. And the other question is, a lot of us have problems with fatigue, and I have seen on different groups around Facebook, people following diets or wondering about diets like a vegetarian or vegan diet or keto diet. Is there anything to be really concerned about with these sorts of diets? Or alternatively, is there anything that you would recommend that would really help people's fatigue food-wise, because it's a big problem. Right, right. And I think that makes a lot of sense. As I said before, I think that 
everybody's diet is so specific. It completely depends on the individual. So if you're mm-hmm. someone who has diabetes and has high blood pressure or high cholesterol, the diet that's recommended to you, in addition to the congenital heart disease, might be different. But I can say from a general perspective, when you're thinking about fighting fatigue, one of the best things that you can do is to try to eat every three to four hours because that at least keeps your blood sugar levels stable and it's not going to worsen the fatigue. The other thing you can think about is whenever you're having a carbohydrate or a fruit, you can think about combining it with some kind of protein or fat because that's not going to worsen your blood sugar fluctuations. The blood sugar does have a role in fatigue. It has a role in energy levels. So thinking about the way that you combine food and how often you eat food is really helpful. I think that whatever diet works best for the individual works best for them. And the only kind of risk I would say to watch out for, especially with something like a vegan diet, would be just making sure that you're supplementing with the appropriate vitamins and minerals. So taking something Mm -hmm. like a multivitamin is really important for someone on a vegan diet because they're not getting many of those B vitamins. They might not be getting enough iron or vitamin D, which could just compound those feelings of fatigue. Yes, yeah. Now that's really helpful. Thank you. Of course. The one thing I noticed when I was on a vegan diet, I ate a lot more dark green leafy vegetables. So iron yeah. wasn't really a problem for me. And I think that a lot of people, if they're doing it right, they are eating a lot of those dark green leafy vegetables that are high in iron. Absolutely. And if they're doing it right, it's generally okay. But I think what Mm -hmm. often happens is I can't tell you how many heart patients I have come in to see me that say that they're on a vegan diet and they're eating carbs. Oh, no. And I think finding that alternative source of protein can be really challenging for those patients. So sometimes Mm -hmm. it just takes some general diet education around how can we ensure you get adequate protein, how can we ensure you get adequate fiber, iron, And I think the emphasis on green leafy vegetables is great. I mean, they're one of the most beneficial foods we can eat. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really good point. Thank you, Megan. Those were great questions. Great questions. Thank you. Okay, so David, did you have a question for Skylar? This is David from Austin, Texas. And also the producer of Heart to Heart with Anna. (laughs) Take it away, David. (laughs) Hi, Skylar. Thanks for taking my question. Quick question. This may be too simplistic, but the number one mistake that people make regarding their nutritional or their diet. I think the question was the number one mistake that people make with regards to nutrition. Yes. That's a really great question. I think the number one mistake that I tend to see people make just on a general population basis is that they don't eat breakfast. And we know from data of something called the National Weight Control Registry that over 90% of people who eat breakfast keep off weight and they stay at a healthy weight. So eating breakfast, in addition to kind of promoting a healthy weight, it also keeps your energy levels stable throughout the day and it helps turn on the machine or your metabolism and helps you burn calories more efficiently. So the best thing that people can do is to eat breakfast because it'll kind of set you up for success for the rest of the day. Not eating breakfast is going to lead to overeating as the day goes on. And we might not feel it at lunch. You might not feel excessively hungry by the time we get to lunch. But what will end up happening is by dinner, we'll realize we've eaten the majority of our calories 
just between the hours of 4 to 8 p.m. And that over time is going to have some not so beneficial effects on the body. Correct. Sleeping right after you ate. And thank you very much for answering because I've heard this before. I didn't think you would say that. I really didn't think you would say that. <laughs> Can I ask another question very quickly? Of course. I, I'm about fluid retention. An adult here with CHD, and my problem now is I'm battling Lasix against my own fluid retention. But do you find that some concoctions that people make up, such as pineapple and cilantro or other concoctions, do they work as well? And do you know of one that does work? I haven't seen as many concoctions um, in patients that I've worked with. And I don't know of one specifically that works, but what I can tell you when you're thinking about counting your fluid needs, something that often gets overlooked is fruit. So fruit actually contains a decent amount of fluid. Um, so when you're thinking about your, if, if, if an individual does have a fluid restriction, I would think about counting fruit into that because that is going to contribute a decent amount of fluid. And there are different ways that you can go online and look for what each fruit might equal in terms of fluid. But sometimes just accounting for the additional amount of fruit and sometimes things like soups people don't take into account actually makes a difference with kind of decreasing some of that fluid retention. But I don't know of any specific shakes or supplements that would help to reduce that. I can say that something like fiber, which we know is good for the heart, um, so fiber comes from fruits and it comes from vegetables and it comes from whole grains. Fiber is going to help someone reduce fluid retention at baseline, regardless of whether they had congenital heart disease or not. So thinking about ways that you might be able to increase your fiber might actually help with some of the fluid retention and kind of decreasing that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So I have a question for you, Skylar. Can you talk to us about low-sodium diet just a little bit? Yeah, so it's actually quite similar to the diet that you would put someone on for high blood pressure, which we call the DASH diet. So a low-sodium diet or the DASH diet is an emphasis on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, limited intake of sugar-sweetened beverages and red meats, uh, and including other sources of leaner types of protein. What we ask patients to do is when they're in the store, if they can flip over the food label of the food that they're looking at, try to first pay attention to the serving size because that tells us how much is in the label. So, for example, something like ketchup, you look at ketchup, that's something that people often overlook as being a source of sodium, but it can contribute quite a bit. When you mm -hmm. look at something like ketchup and you go down to sodium, you want to make sure that the amount of sodium is 10% or less. That's how we know that something is low sodium. There's a number of low sodium foods on the market, especially when we think of the high sodium foods, so things like deli meats, soups. You can often find a lower sodium alternative. Sodium is a preservative, so it's going to be found in a lot of processed and packaged foods. So those are the ones mm -hmm. that you really want to pay attention to. You don't need to pay attention as much to the fresh fruits and vegetables. So paying attention to sodium is really important in addition to fiber. And I think the other thing that people can kind of keep in mind is there's so many lower sodium or sodium-free seasoning alternatives. Some people use things like Mrs. Dash, onion powder, garlic powder. All of these things add flavor without adding sodium. 
And if someone was following a lower sodium diet, I'd actually just suggest that they pick up the DASH diet cookbook. It's D-A-S-H. Because that provides a lot of really helpful recipes and is the same lines of a low-sodium diet. Skyler. Yes. With there's been so many people now that are getting trained in nutrition, whether you're a dietitian or a nurse or the trainer down at the gym, like you said earlier, if you want to hire somebody and you say your insurance doesn't cover the dietitian, but you do have access to a nutritionist, what would you look for to make sure that you're getting the help that you need? I'm really glad you asked that question. That's a really important question. So I think that that's tricky because Massachusetts at least has licensure. So we have licensure requirements, meaning that you cannot go around providing medical nutrition therapy advice without being a dietitian. There's many ways around that, but in order to be referred by a doctor, to be seen by an individual in a hospital, so dietitians are the only nutrition professionals that can work in hospitals, it would have to be a registered dietitian. And the reason for that is that we receive a lot of hours of training in our specialty, and we really have an understanding of not just nutrition, but different disease states and what we call medical nutrition therapy, so the diet education that goes along with specific conditions. So I think it would be hard to identify what to look for in an individual who wasn't a dietitian because my fear would be that For the general population, they might have some good ideas, but when we think about our patients with heart disease, it's a lot more specific. Um, And you really have to understand the things that they're dealing with, whether it's a fluid restriction, a sodium restriction, making sure that they're getting enough calories. Do they have a potassium restriction? Are we worried about other organ systems? So I think it would be tough to identify someone who wasn't a dietitian to provide nutrition advice. My hope is that most insurance will cover nutrition, and if they don't, you can often resubmit with something called the super bill to see if your insurance will cover it. And at least in the clinical setting we've seen at the hospital, most patients, if they obtain a prior authorization, most are able to be covered for nutrition. Wow, that was such a good question, Cindy. Thank you for asking that because I think, oh my gosh, I think so many people are confronted with different people in different walks of life who are like, oh, well, I can help you lose weight. <laughs> I can help you right, get you in shape. You have to be so careful. You have to be mm-hmm. so careful. And I would love to say, look for X, Y, Z in an individual. This is how you know that they know what they're talking about. But it's really hard in this day and age to be able to identify those people because anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Right, right. So let me ask you this. We have a whole new specialty now that didn't exist 24 years ago, and that is the specialty of doctors who specialize in working with adults with congenital heart disease. Are there dietitians who have that kind of specialization as well? So I actually, myself, I see the the Boston patients with the adults with congenital heart disease. There's a clinic at Boston Children's called BOC, the Boston Adult Congenital Heart Disease Clinic. And I think that, as I mentioned before, many of the issues that we see in our pediatric patients with high cholesterol and high blood pressure, we're seeing in our congenital heart disease patients because they're living longer. So I think that while there might not be a specialty for working with adults with congenital heart disease, there are absolutely specialties of working with adults and then working with congenital heart disease. 
So I think kind of, you know, harnessing the resources from those two specialties and bringing it together is really helpful. And I think it's great that we now have, as awful as it sounds, I think it's great that these adults with congenital heart disease are living so long because we're starting to see things that we would notice in a normal, generally healthy patient, right? Without congenital heart disease. Right. Exactly. That's the silver lining. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think so too. For a long time, we all wondered if our children would make it through infancy and then through childhood. And so now to see these same children grown up as adults, and some of them even having their own children, which is a a whole other show that we're going to have to have you come into. (laughs) It is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And it is sad that we are seeing so many of these adults with congenital heart defects have the issues that plague those of us like me who are just old. (laughs) The fact that they have made it that far is actually a wonderful thing. So I'm just hoping it medical technology will continue to stay a step ahead of my son so he can continue to have a good quality of life. Because as you know, Skylar, nutrition plays a key role in our quality of life overall. A huge role, a huge role. And I think the advancements that we're seeing just speak to the amazing work that cardiologists are doing and how much more they're understanding. And nutrition plays a huge part. And Generally, the recommendations that I would give to a patient, even if they had congenital heart disease, would be a general heart-healthy diet, which 100% of the population should be following anyway. So I, I think that it's great that we're so aware of these things. Well, it has been a delight talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Skylar. Well, thank you for having me. It was really, really a pleasure. And thank you to my studio audience, people from all over the world. Thank you for joining. (laughs) And did they have great questions, Skylar? They had great questions, and I actually learned quite a bit. I know. Everyone's signing on, especially from Australia. (laughs) I know. I loved having a nurse on and other people who do research, like Megan. She's always investigating different things and bringing up good points. So I just loved having the studio audience today. It was so fantastic. And it gave us a whole other perspective. I love being the one who interviews, but I love hearing what other people's questions are as well. Absolutely. I really appreciate everyone's feedback and questions. Well, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for coming today and for listening, folks. Please find us on iHeartRadio and subscribe. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.